Um, I need to tell you about the time I went to jail. You're all wondering, right? I went to prison once. I was innocent. I didn't do it, but I went to a jail. Um, it was a place called Honor Wayside Rancho. It sounds like a five-star resort, right? Wasn't. Uh, my brother-in-law is an L.A. County sheriff, and he was stationed there. I was on a tour of the prison. Ah, oh, I look like a hardened criminal, right? I got tattoos and stuff, yeah. So anyway, with tattoos, we're automatically criminals, especially guys with sleeves. But I was on a tour of the prison, and I was in junior high. Uh, I, was, I didn't start growing like to where I'm at now at six, sometimes 6'2", six mostly 6'1". I didn't start till here until like sophomore year in high school. In junior high, I was 5'4", and I was barely taller than my mom. And so I, and we're walking through this prison, and my brother-in-law used to be huge to me, and now he's like here. And so we're, we're walking along, and he goes, oh, there's solitary confinement. And he shows us solitary confinement. And my dad walks in and does the look around. My brothers walk in, do the look around. And here's Brad, this tall. I walk in, and then not two seconds after I'm in the cell, boom, door slams. Lock, lights off. Oh, man, I panicked. I didn't know what was going on. I didn't know why. I thought maybe they forgot me. I'm the youngest of the kids, and so the youngest of the kids tend to get forgotten, even though we're the best. But I thought maybe that I was like Joseph in the Bible, that my, my brothers were trying to sell me. But here I am in solitary confinement, pitch black. The thing is, the place is no bigger than like, it's like this big. Um, it's not very big at all. It's like three feet by three feet. You can sit down in there and there's a toilet and half of it. And so I'm in there and it felt like I was there for 15 minutes, 30 seconds. I was all, I was in there for 30 seconds. And then the light turns back on, they open the door and everybody's laughing and having a good time. It was awful. Prison is meant to be a place, I, I'm assuming from my time of, of hard time in the prison, Prison is meant to be a place where it drains you of things. It reforms you. It's meant to reform you. It's meant to get you to, to stop doing whatever it was that you were doing to get there in the first place. It's a punishment. It's supposed to be a deterrent. And I'm sitting there freaking out because I spent 30, 30 seconds in solitary. In a sense, prison worked for me. I stopped taking the spare change off of the washer and dryer that day and buying baseball cards. That was, that was my crime, stealing dad's spare change. Yet, when we look at the scriptures, when we see where Paul is when he's writing this letter to Philippians, he's sitting in prison. He's in a cell. Most likely, he's chained to somebody 24-7. He's under constant watch. Here's Paul. He used to be the one gallivanting all over the Roman Empire, flashing his Roman citizenship, whatever he got in trouble, and he'd be escorted out of trouble or out of a riot or treated more fairly. And now he's sitting in a Philippian prison under house arrest, constantly with somebody. He can't go anywhere. Paul's prison my, the, my, my, Paul's prison and my prison, the one that I was there, probably looked completely different. Mine probably looked like Ritz-Carlton compared to what he was experiencing. 
He had to raise money and raise his own food. He, had, he was dependent on other people to bring him all of his supplies. Yet Paul remained happy or joyful in the midst of his prison. I freaked out after 30 seconds. Here's Paul chained. Everything about him is now confined to a cell. And yet he is, stays joyful in the midst of it. When we look at the book of Philippians, we'll be in for the next few weeks, joy is the theme. And we all wonder, how can Paul stay joyful in the midst of his trials? And this is what he's encouraging the Philippians or the Philippian Christians to do. Stay joyful. Paul says, rejoice, rejoice, rejoice constantly throughout Philippians. Joy and happiness are a lot different from each other. We confuse happiness for joy. For those of you who are on Whole30 or we're halfway through the new diet, joy is that meal that you're craving. Joy is the sustainable five-course meal with steak and potatoes or sweet potatoes, if you can't have regular potatoes right now, and the vegetables. It's the five-course meal that you just want. Happiness is the frosting of the cake. We settle for happiness we think if I can just eat this frosting all day, I'm going to feel great. And it starts out feeling great until you're halfway through the frosting container and you got a stomachache. Happiness fades. Joy is sustainable. Paul has joy. So how does Paul have joy in the midst of a prison cell? Today I want to look at uh, three, three commitments that enabled Paul to find joy in the midst of his troubling times. The first one I want to look at if you're following along with the bulletin or you're taking notes is Paul had a right perspective, the commitment to the right perspective. Look what Paul says and we'll read the passage again in 18b. I will continue to rejoice, he says in verse 19, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision, the spirit of Jesus Christ, what, ha what has happened to, to me will turn out for my deliverance. I see Paul going like a brave heart kind of thing. This will turn out for my deliverance. It's getting psyched up, right? This will deliver me. Paul's got a perspective here. This will turn out for my deliverance. It's a quote. It's sort of like a, a hyperlink. He's, when he says that line, some of the readers of this letter would have looked and go, oh, he's, he's quoting this person. Or if you drop a movie quote, like when I said William Wallace and Braveheart, we all know what William Wallace and Braveheart is, if you've seen the movie. Some of you, it might be too old for you to see the movie, but go, go watch it. But it's, it's a movie quote, or it's a quote that Paul is talking about here. He says, this will turn out for my deliverance. He's quoting two places, and he's alluding to a third. The first place he's quoting from is the book of Job. How many are familiar with the book of Job? If anybody knew trials, it's Job, right? So there's a time in Job's story, several times in Job's story, where his friends come up to him and they start trying to diagnose what Job should do, how he should act in order to get through this. And in Job 13, verse 13, Job finally speaks up and says, keep silent and let me speak. Then let come to me what may. Why do I put myself in jeopardy and take my life into my own hands? Though he may slay me, Yet I will hope in him. I will surely defend my ways to his face. Indeed, and here it is, this will turn out for my deliverance. For no godless person would dare come before him. This 
will turn out for my deliverance. There's another place where Paul is quoting from. It's in the book of Psalms. David writes this psalm uh, when he's pretending to be crazy and so he doesn't get killed. And so David is on the run and he pretends he's crazy. He says this in Psalm 34. I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I will glory in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Give glory, give the Lord, glorify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I, will, I sought the Lord and he answered me. And here it is. He delivered me from all of my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are, covered, are never covered with shame. The poor man, the, this poor man called and the Lord heard him. He saved him from this, all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and he delivers them. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Both of these passages are centered around times when their writers were going through some very difficult times. The other part that Paul's alluding to is the story of Joseph in Genesis 47 through 50. He was kicked out. He was sold down the river by his brothers. His brothers come back to him. And then Joseph says, like, what got him in trouble was he said, you brothers are going to bow down to me, and I'm going to save you. Finally, Joseph is in Egypt. He's the, he's the second in charge. He, he hands out all the food. His brothers come back to him. He reveals who he is. I'm not dead, he says. And then he, at the very end, his brothers are a little afraid that they're gonna get reve- he's going to get revenge. And Joseph says this, what was meant for evil, God used for good. The idea that what Joseph was going through the suffering, God delivered him from that suffering and used it. So here's Paul quoting two people who have gone through suffering. And what does he say in both passages? He says, the Lord will deliver me from my suffering. This will be for my deliverance. Paul's not saying that the suffering wasn't real. Paul's not saying that it's not that big of a deal. No, he's in prison. Job had lost his family, had lost all of his wealth, all of his friends overnight. David is pretending to be crazy so he's not killed. They're going through some stuff. And Paul says this, this will be for my deliverance. Paul doesn't say that God sent the suffering as if he's the author of evil. Paul says God will use the suffering. What Paul does say in this passage is that there will be triumph over, some, over the suffering, that God will use it for his deliverance. The deliverance is the word salvation, that God is going to redeem specifically this time and place in Paul's story, this suffering that he's going through. And many people don't understand that perspective, but it's what allowed Paul to remain joyful. I've talked before about in 2008 when the wildfire took our house. Uh, a couple days later, we were uh, sifting through the ashes, trying to see what we could find. We were on a, a mission to find mom's wedding ring, and, and, and Carrie found it. And so we found it that day. But that day, CNN and Sky News were on our street trying to interview somebody. And they stopped at our house because our house was the first one on the block. And they stopped there and they walked up. Dad was still in Nepal. And so I was the representative for the family at the moment. And they come and they say, we'd, we'd like to interview you. And I, I, I got this one right. Usually I get them wrong, but usually I got this situation correctly. And they said, how are you doing? And I said, well, the house burnt down. Uh, 
how, you know, it's, you know, it, it's our stuff. It's all of our stuff. We lost our stuff, but it's just our stuff. It can be replaced. And then one of the things dad said to me when he was on the phone, uh, he was in Nepal. He called and uh, he, just to see how things were going. He says, we're going to rebuild this in a year. I was like, okay. Uh, and then the, the reporter said, so what are you going to do? And they're expecting me to say, everything is lost, the doom and gloom, and just sit down and, and stop living in this situation. And something came to me, and I remember what dad said. God's going to use this. I said this to the reporter. God's going to use this situation for something. We don't know what. And it might be years from now. But come back in a year, and this place will be rebuilt. And the reporter didn't know what to think. <laughs> what? God's going to use, oh, okay, this is so-and-so with CNN, back to you. And so, <laughs> and it turned out with the way that our, my family uh, has been going the past couple years, God used what dad rebuilt to care for my mom now. And so God has used that thing for deliverance of the suffering that we went through. Paul says the same thing. God will use this suffering that he's in, in change. God will use this for my deliverance. I don't know how it's going to work, but God will use this. Paul says this, and he allows himself, or he doesn't allow himself to be in despair, no matter how hard it gets. It can get pretty hard. Someone probably next to him has died. People don't get out of prison very often in Rome or in Romans, Roman prisons. They don't get out very often, and so someone might have died next to him. He has every reason to lose despair. But Paul does three things that allow him not to be despairing. One, he doesn't universalize the particular. Here's what I mean. When something bad happens, let's say it's your first time to a local coffee shop named Starbucks, and you walk in there, and you order, and universalizing the particular is this. You take your first sip of Starbucks, and it burns your mouth. That is the worst thing. Burned mouth is awful. When you universalize the particular, you say, every Starbucks drink from here on to eternity will burn my mouth, therefore all of Starbucks is bad. That's taking one situation and coloring your entire world with it. I do it all the time. We universalize the particular. So this person hurts you. They said something. Now you think every person is this way and I'll refuse to trust again. You've colored your world. You've universalized the particular. You've taken one situation and painted everybody like that. Paul doesn't do it. He doesn't say, now every Roman person is bad. No, he says, uh, God's going to use this for my deliverance. The other thing Paul doesn't do is he doesn't freeze in the moment. He doesn't say, well, now I'm done. There's nothing else I can do. I might as well just sit here with the chain around my hand and die. He doesn't freeze. Have you seen the, the have we read the book Great Expectations with Mrs. Haversham? Something goes wrong. She doesn't get married. The, the, her husband leaves her at the altar. What she do? She freezes stops the clocks, keeps the wedding dresses on, doesn't take down the cake. Everything stops in her point in life. Paul doesn't stop. He doesn't freeze. He keeps going. He starts writing letters. This will turn out for my deliverance. Somehow God is going to use this experience for good. The other thing Paul doesn't do is he doesn't lose the plot. 
He knows that something is happening here. He doesn't go back and reverse on everything that he's ever written up until this point. Philippians is one of his final books. He doesn't go back and say, yeah, everything I said in Romans, wrong. Everything I said to the Thessalonians, wrong. I go back on that. In fact, I retract what I said 10 verses ago when I said that God's going to complete the good work. Uh, That's not true either. No, Paul stays faithful. God never made a promise to any of us that we're not going to suffer. James says, when you suffer, Paul is changed in chains at this point. Uh, Jesus promises that we're going to go through hard times. Jesus went through a hard time. It's never promised that you won't have smooth sailing, but when you do, God will use this for something good. He will redeem as long as we stay faithful. God will use what is happening to you. Paul doesn't universalize. He doesn't get into prison and flip. He says, this will turn out for my deliverance, and he's convinced of it. Many of us are going through some stuff. And it's easy to get discouraged and say everything in life will be this way. It's never going to get any better. So I'm just going to ho-hum, act like Eeyore and get through life. That's that's the temptation. Paul says if you want to stay joyful, don't lose yourself in the plot. If you want to stay joyful in the midst of your circumstance, remember that God will use even this for your deliverance. He can redeem This, he can take ashes and make them beautiful again. He can make a creation out of chaos. He can take whatever you're going through and redeem it. It might not look like anything you have ever expected before, but God can redeem. The other thing that keeps Paul going is he's convinced of two things that help him. The second is the people's prayers. If you look in in 18 again, he says, I will continue to rejoice for I know that through your prayers... Paul was heavy on prayer. In most of his letters, in fact, all of the letters, Paul talks about people praying for him. Uh, It's not something new for him to mention. Tim, if you want to put that slide up there, here's what Paul asked people to pray for for him. He asked them to pray for his safety in Romans, 2 Corinthians, Thessalonians, and Philemon. He asked people to pray for his unhindered progress. Again, in Romans, 2 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians. And he asked people to pray for him that he would continue to proclaim the gospel clearly in Colossians and Ephesians. And here in Philippians, Paul is saying, pray that God will deliver me, that God will use this for my deliverance. Pray for me in the times of trial. How is he going to make it through this really difficult time? It seems silly. It seems too easy, right? But Paul relies on it. Prayer. I'm going to stare death in the face, Paul says in the next couple verses. I'm going to live or I'm going to die. And the only way that I'm going to get through this right now is because those people in Philippi are praying for me. Paul has a very profound sense of what the church's responsibility is for each other, that we pray for each other. Paul says to these Christians in Philippi, Philippi, I might die but I know I'm going to make it. Why? Because I have you in my corner and you're going to be praying for me. And because I have you, this will turn out for my deliverance. Paul is saying at some point, I might have a hard day where I want to flip on everything and, and, and change my attitude and reverse course, but I know that you are praying for me. And because of that, I'm going to stay strong. 
We're going through things. All of us are. And to have a group of people around you that are praying for you, it will enable you to stay strong and wait for God's deliverance. I might need you to pray for me because sometimes I want to lock Tim Kim in a broom closet and walk away. (laughs) Call him absent for the day. And here he is. But I would know that if you're praying for me, and now I have value as witnesses of where Tim went, but, but I know that your prayers for those hard days will enable me to keep Tim from being locked in a broom closet. You see what I'm getting at here? Paul's tempted to give up, but he knows that his friends in Philippi are praying for him. This is his understanding of the church. He's going to make it because his friends are carrying, carrying him through prayer. It's the picture of Moses uh, having his hands raised when he's, fought, when he's looking over the battle and the people come alongside of him, his sister, and they hold his hands up so that Moses can keep his hands raised and the battle is fought. People coming alongside of Paul, praying for him so he can make it through. There are going to be days when you want to give up, but Paul's view of the church is that people pray for each other. We surround, and there's something special about us praying for each other. God responds to the prayers of his people. The other way that Paul says he's going to be delivered is he's dependent on their prayers, but particularly he's dependent on their prayers that God would supply him with the sustaining presence of the Spirit Paul can speak of the Spirit, Paul speaks of the Spirit being given in several different ways. In Thessalonians, he says that God God supplied them with the Spirit. In Galatians, he supplied them with Galatians. In, In Ephesians, he commands them to be filled with the Spirit. And in Timothy, he says, Timothy, fan what the Spirit's given you into flame. Paul is giving us a hint here of something. What he's getting at is that all believers, when you believe in Christ, we are filled with the Holy Spirit. But Paul is saying that there are times when the Holy Spirit gives you an extra dose of what he can do. You're filled. You're constantly filled. And Paul says in Philippians, go on being filled. It's an ongoing process of being filled. Jesus fills people with the Spirit, and then he does it again, and then he does it again. And what Paul is saying here is, I know that through your prayers, you're praying for the Spirit to come alongside and fill me and give me the extra dose of himself to get me through what I'm going through. This is no different than what we see in the book of Acts. In chapter four, we see that Peter stands before the Sanhedrin. He's under trial and he's given more of the spirit in 4.8. That persecuted Jerusalem was, was filled with the spirit and he spoke boldly the word of God in 4.31. Stephen in Acts seven was almost murdered, but right before he was murdered, Scripture tells us in in 755 that he was filled. All throughout Paul's ministry, there were times where where he was filled with the Spirit, when he confronted a magician in, in Acts 13. Another time when he was leaving, he was filled with the joy of the Holy Spirit in Acts 13. The Holy Spirit already lived in him, but in these times, there was just more of the Spirit with him to get him through these situations. And we've constructed a theology that says the spirit doesn't work like that anymore, but it still does. Paul is convinced that this will be deliverance and that he will make it because his people are praying for him 
and that the Holy Spirit will come alongside him and enable him and fill him to get through this. This was Paul's understanding of the church. And I'm wondering what would it be like if it was our understanding of the church? If we surrounded each other and people going through some hard times and we pray that the Holy Spirit will give them what they need, that this will be their deliverance. I know it happens. I wonder what would it, what would it be like if it happened more? That it became a habit of us to say, I'm going through some stuff. I, I, I need more There's no problem asking for more. It's like you're at Thanksgiving. You've had your turkey. You're full. But the stuffing's coming around again. You want some more. It's good. Ask for more. Paul asks for more. Peter gives more. Jesus gives more. What would it look like if you're going through and you say, I need to be prayed for so I can see through that this would be my deliverance. This is what the church is used for. This is what the church should be for. And Paul models it for us. I've experienced it. When dad passed away two years ago, we had a tight-knit group of people up here uh, in Seattle and a very close group of friends down in California surrounded Carrie and I in prayer. Our son was three months old. Dad passes away. People prayed for us, and it was just this thing. We felt it. We got through it. There was an extra dose of the Spirit with us at that time. And got us through that. The spirit moves to people's prayers. And this is the picture of what Paul is saying. This is what the church does. This is what we should do. And because of it, the spirit fills. And it will be turned out for deliverance. So Paul had a perspective. This will turn out. He had people praying for him. And the last part is Paul had the correct posture. Look at Philippians 1.27. Whatever happens... Conduct yourselves in the manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a turning point in the whole book if you're looking at a structure. For the last 26 verses, Paul has been saying, here is what's happened to me. I'm in prison, blah, 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 I might die, this, 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 this. And then, then in 27, he goes, enough about me. I'm done about me. I want to talk to you about some things. I, I want to speak to what you're going through. No matter what happens to you, saying, if you want to rejoice like I am in prison, here's one thing, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. He's concerned about their attitude especially in the times when they're going to be persecuted, especially in times when they're forced to make a decision between right right and wrong, when they're going to be arrested. No matter what happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. We hear this, we think that Paul is talking about minding your P's and Q's of behavior, but Paul is making a bigger statement in this passage. Yeah, it has to do with your conduct, but it's conduct based on something else. The word conduct is a political word. It's a very political word. Paul is talking to the group in Philippi, which was a very political city. He's saying to a group of people who were once generals and soldiers of the empire to conduct themselves in a manner worthy, and this is how they would finish it, in a manner worthy of Rome, because Caesar is our king. Paul takes this and says, 
yeah, you are a citizen of Rome. It's great. Flash that Roman passport wherever you go. It gets you in certain doors. Absolutely. Then he says, more importantly, don't, or he says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of not Rome. He raises the bar on them and says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. You are citizens. Yes, you are citizens of Rome, but Caesar is not your king. Your king is Jesus. And Caesar might make laws. Caesar might make it easier. He might have uh, things that we all like, but your ultimate loyalty, people of Philippi, and I'll add you people as well, your ultimate loyalty isn't to the politic of the day. Your ultimate loyalty is to the king of the universe. We belong to the kingdom of God first. And Paul is challenging these people in Philippi to say, your allegiance is to Christ. Conduct yourselves first in a manner worthy of Christ to a Roman colony. Paul's pretty brave here. You conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. And this is the basis of hope. Because everything changes around here every two years. Every four years we have a new political theme in office. Those, they come and they go. Speeches are made. Policies are written. And your hope can go like this. And your joy can go up and down like the sea. And Paul says, that stuff's fine. You're responsible to the king of the universe, not to the Caesar in office. We report to a higher power. Our allegiance is to Christ. This is the, this is the foundation of his hope. And the hope is the foundation of his joy. When Caesar's laws would interfere with Christ's law, who does Paul follow? Christ or Caesar? Christ. That's why he's in prison. When Caesar allows many things that the kingdom of God doesn't allow, doesn't phase Paul. But even deeper than this, the question is, it's tied to the question of Jesus or Caesar, and it's their hope or their joy. Their circumstance doesn't dictate their joy because they're in a different kingdom than everybody else. Their joy isn't dictated by their comfort of living. His joy isn't dictated by the person in office. His joy is centered around the king of Jesus and the gospel and the good news that he brings. Paul had a perspective. He had prayer, and then he had a posture. He belongs to the kingdom of God. So therefore, whatever happens to him, he's fine. This will turn out for his deliverance because he belongs to a different kingdom, to a different, to a different form of rules, to a different world. And no matter the circumstance, it's not going to rob him of the joy. In the midst of the chains that bind him and the midst of the chains that bind us, I wonder if we would be able to have the same postures to have the same perspective. And today I wonder if we would be willing to pray for each other. Knowing some stories, seeing faces, I know that there's some things that we're going through. And we could probably really pray for each other for a long time. But I wonder if we give this some space in our service today. And I want us to be brave. In a minute, I'm gonna have, it's better if we all stop looking around, right? So a minute, let's say, let's stop, let's close our eyes. And if you could really use prayer for something, I'm going to ask you to be courageous and simply stand up. 
And when you're sitting in your chair and you realize that someone around you has stood up, I'm going to ask you to be a part of the Bethany Ballard prayer team. You don't have to say anything magical. There's no pressure. Just put your hand on their shoulder and ask God that he would send his spirit to this individual and help them see to this, that help them believe that God will see the deliverance in this. That's all you have to do. So if you need prayer, will you stand? And as you're standing, the people around you, if there's no one standing around you, look around. There's people standing across the room. There's one in the back, on the side here. Someone standing, with, standing, will you stand up next to them? Put your hand on their shoulder. Don't be afraid. We're all commanded to pray for people. We can do this. Adam's going to play some pretty music on the guitar because he's good at it. And as he's, pray, as, as he's playing, uh, if you're being prayed for, uh, feel the hands around you and know that they're praying for you, that, that you would receive uh, the Spirit to carry you through whatever you're going through. So as he plays, let's pray. So God, we pray. We pray that you would uh, send your spirit on those who are going through uh, these times of chains. Lord, whether they be anxiety-ridden, whether they be uh, personal struggles, whether they're new and they hit this morning or it's something that they saw sneaking up on them for a long time, Lord, they're in the middle of it. Lord, we pray that you would come alongside with your spirit, that it would enable them to have the hope that you're going to use this, even this, for, your, for their deliverance. Lord, we pray for those who uh, didn't feel like standing, yet they're going through. Lord, we pray for them, them as well. Lord, would you touch the hearts that are broken? Would you mend them? Would you bring them back to wholeness? Would you give us the deep joy that comes from your spirit, from knowing you? And may we continue to contend for the gospel, that our hope would lie in you and not in something that shifts every two days. In you we hope, and because we hope in you, we have joy. It's in your name we pray.